Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to this podcast, To Hell and Back. I'm Charlie, and it's 4 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, the 10th of October, in uh, Massachusetts. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be on, but, but I have to tell you, there's a problem today that requires skills practice on my part. Um, a few, just uh, a few short days ago, I came back from a trip uh, where I was teaching DBT for a week in Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, I think I'm still a little under the um, jet lag syndrome. I'm just a little dragging around. Uh, I'm not sick or anything, but going through my day dragging around, and I thought, you know, how can I do a podcast? How do you start a podcast telling people you don't want to do a podcast? That's kind of a bummer. But uh, I thought, actually, it's a good opportunity. I have to practice my skills. I mean, it isn't, a, it isn't hell dragging through jet lag or dragging through tiredness and not wanting to do something, but it does, but it does call upon skills to regulate emotions because I want to get into it. Um, so I have to kind of like get myself leaning into this podcast and do something that helps jack up my energy level. So because I think it's a really interesting podcast to focus on the skills in DBT for working with uh, addictions, the tools for dealing with the hell of having an addiction. Um, so what I decided, first, then I thought, well, this is, I think, I haven't looked at the exact date, but I think it might be the one-year anniversary this week or last week for the podcast uh, that I've done. And so that's kind of cool one full year, um, 31 or 32 podcasts. And so I thought, well, what do you do when you have an anniversary? And I thought, you know, you have a party. So I want to throw a podcast party. So here I am um, numbering one person sitting in a guest room, talking on my phone and having a party. So um, um, I'll just have the best party you can have. Um, And of course, with any good party, you need music. So I'm um, today, earlier, I wrote a song uh, about podcasts. And uh, so I thought, okay, let me now get into that song um, and sing it to you. It's a strange kind of song. It's called Celebrating Podcasts. Uh, but it's, uh, as you'll see, there's a sort of a, it isn't an entirely positive view of podcasts, but uh, <laughs> so what? All right, here it is, Celebrating Podcasts. I'll try to get at the tune in my head. I can listen to a podcast when I'm driving in my car, flying in an aeroplane, or sitting at a bar, washing my hair, brushing my teeth, or putting on my pants. When I can educate myself, I hate to lose the chance. If you've heard a thousand podcasts, you can listen to one more. They'll never exceed your infinite capacity to store information, commentary, stupid songs like this, and stuff in spirituality until you find your bliss. Open your eyes, look around, I'm sure that you will see that life is unpredictable. There's little certainty. There's taxes, death, and politics. It's hard to get away. We have to try to occupy each minute of each day. I dread and fear when gaps appear 
and then I need to choose to sit, to think, to eat, to drink, or listen to the news. There's way too many choices. We have to realize that gaps are traps and empty time will never make us wise. A miracle has now arrived to save us from the gaps. To paper over dreaded holes in time, they're simply traps. Just open up a podcast and dump it in your brain. Don't be fooled by freedom, it will always bring you pain. Some podcasts recommend emptiness as the ultimate path to joy. Mindfulness of good and bad for every girl and boy. And others warn that emptiness will simply make you blue. I bet there is a podcast that will tell us what to do. Yay! Yay! Celebrating podcasts. <laughs> Generating a party of one. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I can just sort of say, this was great. What a great song. And then, and, and then another person here might say, what a stupid song that was. And then the other one would say, why? Why are you saying it's a stupid song? I thought it was pretty good. Well, it's stupid because you're saying in a podcast that people shouldn't listen to podcasts. I said, yeah, well, so what's stupid about that? Well, it's just stupid. Why would people listen to a podcast in order to hear that they shouldn't listen to a podcast? I said, but, you know, it's, don't call it stupid. I mean, you don't need to go, go down that road. Call it dialectical. It's, it's exactly what we mean in DBT by dialectical. Why is that? Because it has within it two opposites, both of which are given uh, credit, you might say. There is the one side that says, you know, podcasts are cool, and there's lots of cool stuff that you can get in podcasts and listen to them in lots of situations. And the other side says, you know, podcasts is just another thing in our massively overly consumerizing society to consumerize just like we got to fill up every single minute of every single day with something going into our brains and therefore that's kind of you know that that there could be an argument against that so there you go first teaching point today that's what dialectical means in dbt and um yeah okay end of party uh or you can just think the party's going on um okay so now, what I want to do next is, uh, in today's podcast, which is going to be focused on skills to use when the crisis that you're having is an addiction. Um, but before that, some of you may think this is kind of repetitive, but I believe in repetitiveness when it comes to learning. So I'm going to do something. I've taught now, in this current mm, trend of my podcasts, I've been teaching skills from DBT Skills Manual, and it began with mindfulness skills and then distress tolerance skills, which are two of the four modules of skills, two of the four packages of skills for um, surviving hell and getting out of hell in DBT or in life in general. So I just want to say, having just gone over them, I'm not going to go over them again, but um, uh, I do want to say a few things about it. One is that the underlying theme of all of the ones I've taught so far is acceptance. Uh, accepting reality as it is, accepting and working with life on its own terms. Um, it includes things like how to let go of an attachment to how you think things should be, 
in order to accept them as they are. It includes how to bring yourself back again and again into this one and only present moment, this breath we're taking, this thought we're having, this activity we're doing, this conversation. Just be there. It's an unbelievably skillful thing if you can do that. It includes how to take advantage of the fact that everything, and I mean everything from the inside out and the top to the bottom, is impermanent, constantly changing, um, which sometimes brings us uh, to a feeling of loss and sadness because things are changing that we valued. Sometimes it's, uh, it's hopeful because if we're in a bad state, we can know it's going to change. It's a very skillful thing to keep in mind. It also includes how to settle into this moment as it is undistorted by our wishes and beliefs um, to settle into this body that we have, the relationships we have, this brain, and this impermanent world that's constantly changing around us. How to relax into reality and Pay attention to both the bad and the good, not feeling there's a necessity to discharge the bad and to heighten the good. And, um, uh, and to realize that everything that comes into being, including things we don't like, in fact have been caused by everything that came before and therefore are as they should be. So these are just some insights about acceptance that underlie the skills I've been teaching. So... Last time, I came up with a handy-dandy formula. I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty mundane. Uh, for remembering all the skills I've covered so far, because you might think, oh, my God, I don't want to go back and listen to all of those. But um, I, So what I called it was uh, 6, 6, and 6. Um, let's, I, I would call it, I called it last time, the acceptance um, apparatus that is built into every one of us. We all have the capacity to do six and six and six. And some of us do it more than others. Some of it, some of us, when it comes to addictions, for instance, have let a lot of these uh, kind of fade or atrophy because we've put all of our investment into an addiction as life's solutions. But So let me go over them quickly. And the reason I find this valuable is that it's just like when you have a set of tools, like a carpenter has a set of tools, um, it's one thing to have all these tools and know how to use them, but it's also so useful to know where they are, to be well organized and have the tools uh, in categories and in where you can get to them. So this six and six and six is an effort in that direction. There are six mindfulness skills, uh, and then in distress tolerance, there are six skills for surviving a crisis, and also in distress tolerance, there are six reality acceptance skills. And finally, what I'll begin teaching later is that there are seven additional skills for when the crisis is an addiction. So the six uh, mindfulness skills, if you remember, and you probably know this, but are observing, describing, participating, non being non-judgmental, being one mindful, meaning doing things absolutely one thing at a time, and being effective, meaning really focus on doing things um, that work as opposed to doing things out of righteousness uh, or other 
um, sort of principles like that, doing things that work. So those six are the skills that help you move in the direction of wise mind. So that's a rapid summary, but hang on to those six because actually just having these in your mind, if you lay down tonight and go to sleep, and before you go to sleep, you say, oh, yeah, what are the six and six and six? And you start drilling these into your brain. They come out more easily. And then you get interested in using them more easily. So let's move on to uh, distress tolerance. There are six crisis survival skills, which are also called in the treatment crisis survival strategies, which is how do you get through a crisis, an emotional crisis, a physical crisis, a life crisis, without acting in a way that makes things worse. How do you get through it? Okay, so there are six of these, um, but actually I counted them up. There's, there's six types of skills, but if you actually add the number of skills in this little grouping, it's 28 to 30. So there's the stop skill, S-T-O-P. S for stop, T for take a step back, O for observe, what's going on in you and around you, and O also I add in for notice options, and P for proceed. So you stop, take a step back, observe, and proceed mindfully after you've taken a pause. There's the TIP skills, T-I-P, though actually they stand for four things. So it's really T-I-P-P, but Lynn Henry prefers to just call them the T-I-P skills. Um, and um, these skills are temperature, so using cold temperature on your face in order to calm yourself down, to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. The I is intense aerobic exercise in order to reduce negative emotions and to increase positive ones. One of the P's is a progressive muscle relaxation a sort of a tensing and letting go exercise that can help you let go of the tension in you. And the other P is paced breathing, where you slow your breathing down to five or six full cycle breaths per minute and make sure that your out breath is uh, significantly longer and slower than your in breath and do this for a while. And this also helps activate the sympathetic nervous system and creates some greater calm. So those are the stop skills and the tip skills. Then there's the pros and cons skills in which you take out paper and pencil or whatever, um, and you uh, make a, a four square, and you look at the pros and the cons of doing the uh, behavior that you're tempted to do that's usually a problem behavior, like cutting yourself or drinking, and the pros and cons of uh, restraining yourself and doing something else that's more adaptive. And when you go through that exercise, it highlights the difference between what are your long-term goals and what are your short-term goals. And it might help you hold off doing the uh, ineffective behavior. Then there's the fourth type of these, crisis survival skills, which, are, which is distracting distracting in lots of different ways, which is basically bringing your mind to a different stimulus. 
so that you're not constantly driven over and over again, around and around, by a certain stimulus that's absolutely driving you out of your mind or making you have a lot of negative emotions. So you distract your mind by doing certain things that are neutral or positive. You distract your mind by by thinking certain things, by generating certain emotions. Uh, and there are, I think, um, seven different ways in this in the manual to distract yourself and then the next the fifth category or type of skills is self soothing skills which focuses on ways to soothe yourself ways to help yourself feel more comforted and calmed down when you're in a crisis and those include especially organizing different ones around the different sense modalities like you know smell and taste and touch and hearing and looking um, Though there's a couple more sensory modalities that we don't usually include in this that you could include. One would be proprioception, which is sort of the perception of our inner workings, like of our muscles, for instance. Um, so there may be ways that, you know, we start to um, tune in proprioceptively to what's going on inside us that could be soothing, uh, especially if we move ourselves around in ways that create soothing sensations inside and uh, and vestibular, uh, you might say, sensations, what goes on in the semicircular canals of the inner ear uh, that has to do with balance and movement and positioning in space. And uh, so, um, for instance, when I was a little kid and I would try to get myself to go to sleep when I had insomnia, I never thought it and didn't categorize it, but I found that what was most helpful was just laying there and rocking my head closing my eyes with lying on my back and rock my head back and forth on the pillow a hundred times. Just that movement after a while created a sort of a soothing sense and I would go to sleep. And the sixth type is improve the moment, which means nothing. I mean, it captures the idea of improve the moment, but all of these are to improve the moment. But the improve is an acronym, I-M-P-R-O-V-E, and we've been over them, so we won't cover them again, but the I is imagery, for instance. One of the P, the P is prayer, M is meaning, etc., etc. So lots of different things to do. Third, so we've got six mindfulness skills, we've got the six crisis survival strategies, and six reality acceptance skills. And what are those? Those are skills that just help you do what I was talking about before, accept reality as it is in this moment, is a skillful thing to do if you can't change it reduces your suffering. So the first one is a big one. I mean, it's really a whole principle, but you can practice it in a very skillful way, in a step-by-step way that I went over when I taught it, um, called radical acceptance from deep within, with your heart and soul and mind, to really fully accept what is real. Um, Second, to turn the mind is the second one. To turn the mind, and that really captures that if you do radical acceptance your mind will probably slip back to non-acceptance again and again and again. And when you notice that, you just want to turn your mind back towards radical acceptance. And the third is willingness, which is a little bit like radical acceptance, but it specifically applies to grasping that there's kind of ways that the universe works, certain unwritten rules of the universe uh, and of our own little universes in our own lives. And it, it just means being willing to go with what the rules are, rather than always having to take a position to go against them, which might be called willfulness. So willingness is going with in order to be effective. 
The fourth of these, erratic reality acceptance skills, is uh, the fourth and fifth are physical ones, willing hands, positioning your hands in a kind of uh, way that conveys acceptance and receptivity and willingness, holding your hands with the palms up and just letting yourself entirely be your hands, accepting things as they are. And a similar but different one is the half smile where you allow your face and your neck and uh, jaw to settle into a more serene expression, letting the muscles relax. And then at the end of all of that, um, bringing the outside edges of your lips up um, in, a, in a just tiny, tiny Mona Lisa or Buddha kind of smile that can help create a sense of serenity. And the last of these six is mindfulness of thoughts, allowing yourself to allow your thoughts to rise and fall and move around and be what they need to be without identifying with your thoughts, without believing your thoughts are reality, but just kind of like noticing, yes, here are my thoughts coming and going, and there's all kinds of them. There's positive, there's negative. It's kind of creating a large and accepting container for your thoughts so that it softens some of the harsh ones. Okay? So those are six, six, and six. Um, now, seven more skills that come from the distress tolerance module, but specifically re re related to addictions. Um, if you, uh, um, let's say you don't have an addiction, that's great if that's true. Turns out there's so many types of addiction that I, I don't know if most of us have addictions, but there's an awful lot of addictions. Our society is filled with addictions. It's really kind of discouraging if, from a certain angle. So if you don't have an addiction, I still find that these seven skills are really cool and very interesting and really can help you with different life situations. They specifically are helpful for somebody who is driven by urges to use a substance or to engage in an activity addictively. Um, so, 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 let's take this on. Um, let me say first about addictions. What do I mean by addictions? Addictions aren't just, let's say, addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, addiction to cigarettes, um, but it's also addiction um, to, um, you know, internet porn, uh, addiction to exercise, addiction to eating or eating certain things, um, addiction to work so that somebody is really a workaholic, um, addiction to gambling, right? Um, addiction to uh, one's iPhone. Uh, so how do what do they all share? What I mean by an addiction here. Um, and this is why it's so common if you define it this way, and this is the way addictions are typically defined, is there are certain characteristics. First of all, it involves repetitive use of a substance of some kind or repetitive engagement in a certain activity, and that, that it's frequent and that it's often that you are doing it over and over again, and not just once in a while. That's not an addiction. Um, but an addiction is when you keep doing it. That's one characteristic. Second characteristic is that um, um, while it may have begun by uh, bringing uh, some kind of pleasure or relief, that um, by the time it's an addiction, 
it's also having destructive consequences. It does harm to your life or the life of those around you, right? So the difference of a problem drinker or let's say an alcoholic or somebody who has a glass of wine or beer every night but doesn't engage in anything that's harmful to anybody else. Whatever you think of that person who's having a beer or a glass of wine every night, it probably wouldn't merit calling it an addiction unless it is also creating harm. Now, harm is, can be done in so many ways that harm could just mean, as I heard from a patient of mine today about her husband, that harm can be, um, you know, that, that you're so preoccupied with uh, or you're so affected by what you're drinking, even if it's a glass or two of wine at night, that actually you're not available for any human interaction. You drink... You look at your phone, you look at the television, you have another drink, you get quiet, and people that love you may be there with you, but they can't really interact with you. So that's a certain level of harm. And obviously there's much worse. There was, there was alcoholism within my family, and, uh, and, and it went to a proportion in one of my family members of uh, being uh, devastating. Um, so, those are addictions. Now... I did another thing here. Let's see if I've got this here. When I was trying to capture what happens, I wanted to give a bunch of examples, but I decided instead, for better or worse, that I would um, write a story of somebody who's trapped in an addiction that captures a lot of the characteristics that make uh, them ripe for the kinds of tools I'm teaching and that are in DBT and ripe for DBT for substance use disorders in general. And this is not a story of any one person. It's a composite of three or four people I've known in my life. Uh, all but one of them were people in treatment with me, and someone else is just somebody that I knew. Um, so here's how the story goes. And then uh, it goes for about 10 minutes, I think. I haven't read it out loud yet, but it's four double-spaced pages. Wendy came back into consciousness in spurts falling in and out of being awake until she was mostly awake, in the dark, amidst a suffocating smell, a rattling and bumpy ride, and a grinding high-pitched noise coming from somewhere. She couldn't remember how she got there, didn't know where she was. She had a throbbing headache, and she felt sick, a bit confused, dizzy, and disoriented. Her neck was twisted and in pain. Her legs were cold enough to seem almost detached from the rest of her. They were folded tight against a very cold metal surface that was shaking like everything else. Her brain was foggy. How did she get there? She knew she was in something moving, probably a moving vehicle. A truck? Was she in the back of a truck? Her capacity to think straight was flickering on and off. Wait, now she remembered. It came to her that she was in the baggage compartment of a bus, and it seemed, for all she could tell, like it was going down a highway. Now an image returned. She had climbed or fallen into a baggage compartment of a bus just before it closed, just before it took off, thoroughly intoxicated and just wanting to get the hell away from wherever she was. 
Why, she wondered. Why would she do that? Somewhere down inside her headache, she knew that she was running from someone. She was getting away from a guy, the guy with whom she had been drinking. Fuck. This was an old pattern for someone so young, 22 years old. Oh yeah, she had gotten away from him, near the bus station, saw the open baggage compartment, and just climbed or fell right into it, just before the driver returned and threw some bags in behind her. No one knew she was there. It was comforting, actually, in that moment, that no one in the world knew where she was. She didn't know where they were going, but that seemed okay. She just needed to sleep. She slept and woke up, and slept and woke up. The ride went on and on, never-ending. At some point well into the ride, she pushed herself up to a sitting position, dragging her butt forward and resting her back against a metal wall behind her. It was warm, thank God. Must have been next to the engine. Then she realized her hand was wet, and she felt around. Oh, shit. She was feeling vomit on the floor, her own vomit. More than anything else in the world right now, she did not want to feel her own vomit, be in her own vomit as she had been already many times before. She thought, this is hitting bottom, the very lowest. As her awareness returned, her thoughts imploded into a thought meltdown. I am in my own vomit. I am alone and cold. I am under a bus, riding to where I don't know. My head is throbbing, my neck is in pain, and I just wish I were dead instead of this. Then, almost strangely, she thought of her pocketbook and her wallet. She reached around her, feeling for it, but it wasn't there. No driver's license, no credit cards, no money. She began to cry, which was almost a relief, except that with heavier breathing, she inhaled fumes from the bus. Wendy had lost more than her pocketbook. She had lost her place in life. She had lost any semblance of having a life, any life worth living. Hadn't she just yesterday, maybe five years ago, had friends, had some hopes and dreams for the future, assumed that her flirtations with substances and with guys were just temporary flings? Hadn't she had hopes of going to college and studying to be a social worker, and then working with the down and out, the homeless, the drunk, the disenfranchised of the world? How did she get here, being homeless, drunk, disenfranchised, and essentially friendless? It was too much to contemplate, contemplate all at once, too depressing. And in fact, she had gotten there in a series of steps, beginning with having a lot of fun, and now finding that fun was completely gone, and her only way to feel less bad was to drink. During that miserable moment, as the facts of her world crashed in on her, she remembered something else that she had lost. In her pocketbook, she had kept, as a kind of emergency supply, two miniatures of vodka. Of everything right now, that was the worst loss she was feeling. How pathetic. Wendy had gotten to this point in a way similar to other alcoholics, to other addicts. She started doing something with friends, drinking in high school. 
As it turned out, driven almost entirely by genetics, she loved alcohol. She loved the taste. She loved the whole process. She loved how it made her feel. She fell in love with alcohol. And she had some glorious times with friends, during which she was more social than ever, having more fun than she had had in her life. Those days, that first year, her drinking was for her almost entirely a positive. We can assume that drinking caused spurts of dopamine, of reward, to surge in her brain each time she drank. And little by little, beginning with her decision not to go to college yet, she built her life with her friends around drinking. Not that she would have seen it that way at the time. For her, it just felt like a wonderful add-on, a recreational activity. From the outside, from her family's perspective, it had looked like her life trajectory towards wanting to build a really cool life around things that would be meaningful to her was taken over and replaced by her desire to drink and organizing everything that came with that. By this point in her story about the bus, her brain and her behavior had drastically changed. No longer was it that much fun to drink, making her more social. and having good times. Drinking now was a necessity. Drinking was needed in order to feel a little bit normal. Otherwise, she felt totally like shit. She was caught, and her brain was changed in a way that could last for years, if not a lifetime. She saw no way out, but was always motivated to have the next drink, or if necessary, other drugs. The bus pulled to a stop, a jarring stop, probably at a stop sign. She fell over on top of a suitcase. Should she open that suitcase and search through it, she wondered. Maybe someone else had some kind of liquor. Even a beer would save her life right now. She used to love beer, which now she looked back upon as an innocent first love, a tender experience, all positive. If only she could go back to that, but she knew it didn't work like that anymore. Or if only she could actually fall in love with someone, someone who was nice to her and who would insist that she not drink. Yes, yes, as important as drinking was to Wendy, she knew in her wiser self that she had to stop it to have a life. Not that she could see the positives that would come from stopping it, not that she could see how she would stop it, but she was aware that the path she was on was a dead end. At age 22, her, she felt that her soul was gone. Ugh. So the bus came finally to a screeching and total stop, and everything shook again. Her mind became fixed on the next step. She knew the bus driver would be coming for the luggage. She knew she was about to get in trouble and she might be back in jail yet again. The door came open. Normal people, having had a normal bus ride, were standing out there. She could see their legs. The driver reached in with a pole to drag out the suitcase. Suitcases. The metal hook caught on Wendy's shorts 
and the driver tried to yank it. Then he looked in and saw her sitting there. He yelled, get the fuck out of my bus. She yelled back, fuck you, man, in spite of having a sense of terror and deja vu. And lucky for her, he didn't call the cops. He just kicked her out. She crawled out, and now with the light uh, shining in from outside, she could see the vomit on the floor. The bus moved on. Wendy sat on a bench and waited for her mind to clear. She held her throbbing head in her hands. It was early in the morning. They must have been driving all night long. It was cold, and it was another unfamiliar town somewhere she didn't recognize. In the past, she might have thought it gave her another chance. Now she felt her chances were actually gone, and she was just sliding toward her death. She fell into a deep sleep, lying on the bench. She wanted her mother. She just wanted someone to hold her and tell her it was okay, that everything would be okay. But it wasn't to be. She dreamt about her mother. In the dream, everything was fine. Everything was normal. She was about 12 years old, clean, sober, and motivated. But in the dream, her mother just looked past her, as if she did not exist. When she woke up and realized she had had this vivid dream, she cried. It seemed like her mother had given up, had moved on, and she was in her own lonely pit of a life. It was a dream of times lost, of dreams lost, innocence forgotten, and a disconnect from the simple life of her childhood. By this point, Wendy was living the life, a variation on the typical life of an addict. She wanted alcohol, would do what she could do to get it. Then she would drink it and feel the anxiety recede. And she wouldn't feel good, but she would feel better than she had. And then she felt like shit afterwards, until she used again. She was in what in DBT is called addict mind. She almost never got out of the cycle of searching, using, recovering, searching, using, recovering, except when she was in jail for a week, during which she got really sick and had the shakes, but began to feel like maybe she could get out of the cycle. The hour she left jail, that thought disappeared as she got some alcohol. Sometimes she thought that she might escape if only she would be in a car accident or nearly be killed when some man was abusing her and have a near-death experience, be in a hospital, and stop drinking. Then something magical and inexplicable happened. She woke up, still on the same bench, in this unknown town, and her sister, her baby sister, uh, three years younger than she, was sitting next to her. Her sister Sam was more than heartbroken about what had become of her admired, beautiful, athletic, big sister Wendy. Now all she saw was a shell of a person, an appendage to alcohol, dying by the day. How did Sam know where to find her, Wendy wondered. She had no idea, but admittedly she couldn't think her way out of a paper bag at that point. Sam just sat there looking straight ahead, looking concerned, but saying nothing holding back the scolding she wanted to give her sister, knowing it accomplished nothing. Sam's only thought was, maybe this is such a low point that Wendy will finally agree to enter a program. Sam had found a DBT program for substance use disorders, and she got Wendy an appointment. Wendy went to the first appointment, 
a therapist, a recovering alcoholic herself, treated her with absolute compassion and hope and gave an explanation of DBT that seemed reasonable. Wendy was worried mostly that she would be expected to give up alcohol, and she didn't think she could do that. But she also wanted someone to reach in there, grab her by the neck, make her stop drinking, and make her build a life. So she sat in a state of intense ambivalence. Now, we come to the end of that story, and we come appropriately, you might say, to um, talking about uh, DBT for uh, substance use. And uh, this will go on this week, and and then next week I'll get through all of the skills. I'll begin on them today. So, 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 so. Um, Let me just see what I want to say here. Say something about addiction stories. Nearly everybody knows addiction stories in our society, either their own or those of other people that they know, because it's so widespread uh, if you add up all the different kinds. Addiction stories usually begin, as Wendy's did, with hope and dreams, excitement, fun, pleasure, getting high, getting drunk, binging on comfort foods, shopping like crazy, exercising beyond measure, gambling with measure beyond measure of hope and excitement, porn and masturbation to satisfaction, Uh, binging on work, making great accomplishments, driven by a desire to do amazing things. Because at the root of so many addictions, if not all, is a restlessness, a search, a bet on the idea that life in the next moment can be more fulfilling, more satisfying, more fun, more rewarding than in this moment. That is, at the heart of addictions is a desire for life to be actually better than it is. And better leads to a pursuit over and over again, often facilitated by a genetic predisposition, repetitive behavior uh, that transforms the moment again and again. Even an addict or alcoholic in recovery, and you can see this if you go to 12-step meetings, um, in a very dramatic way sometimes, uh, is prone to go over the good old days, the glory days, the days of getting high and intoxicated, the days of taking control of your life by losing control. Control being a centerpiece of the concerns of an addict. Forgetting the agony of the next day. In fact, if you're a new member of 12-step programs, it's sometimes a problem. I've known teenagers in this situation where they go to a 12-step program and they get a lot out of parts of it. But one of the things they also see is people looking back on the days when they were using as, for some of them, the best days they ever had. And that can really be, be not helpful. And yet it's just a reality that at that stage of their development of their addiction, It may have been the best it's ever been. Um, 
So what I'm saying in part is that the addiction for most people is a reach for control over one's life. Um, and, uh, and sometimes that way of taking control is a loss of control. Um, and it sometimes is a defiant version of control. I'll do whatever the fuck I want. And it becomes a, a statement of rebellion against society or against a family or against some person in particular. So, as I'm saying, the early stage of an addiction can be the high point, no, no pun intended, of one's life. Um, and realize that repetitive activities like these for a teenager or a young person or even repetitive ingestion of substances uh, doesn't necessarily become an addiction. This includes repetitive self-cutting behaviors which can take on the form of an addiction but actually there's a lot of teenagers it turns out the vast majority of people who cut themselves for a while do not turn out to be cutting addicts something like 12 to 14 percent do so um, addiction really isn't just the actual doing of the behavior repetitively itself it requires the other characteristics I mentioned before including ruining one's life and then the, another characteristic is that then you can't stop that you need the repetitive behavior in order to function to function at work to function in your home to function in your mind to function sexually and lots of other things and what happens over time is that because that becomes the only card in your deck or the most powerful one drinking or whatever is the addiction that becomes the thing you do and it becomes the centerpiece of your strategy for emotion regulation then all these other skills that I've been talking about and the skills that will be coming up in the coming weeks, all those skills just kind of, if you had them, they kind of atrophy. They certainly don't strengthen because you're going away from them and going towards a substance as your, or a repetitive activity as your, as your emotion regulation strategy. So it ends up getting worse and worse and, uh, and you start to feel like there's nothing else I can do. Now, it is characteristic of uh, what happened to Wendy and, and characteristic of addictions in general that whereas at first the thing that kept the addiction going uh, was positive reinforcement. It was reward. It was pulses of dopamine in the brain in response to the activity or the use of substance. That that is positive reinforcement um, and it's rewarding. But over time, that... Uh, the brain, the biology of the brain changes in ways that have been been researched so that now you have a brain that ha can't generate reward in the same way. Uh, but actually, the use of the substances takes on a different um, function, which is to help you uh, remove yourself from negative emotional states, including withdrawal. When you, if you're in a withdrawal state, but that's a physiological state. But, but, and so it goes to be what's called negative reinforcement. Is that, that's a, when a behavior is reinforced because the behavior is followed by removing some negative uh, subjective experience. So if it removes anxiety, if it removes depression, if it removes boredom and restlessness, 
um, then you'd call, you, then you'd say that that behavior, that repetitive behavior is being reinforced negatively, not positively. And that's why I think later it feels like, uh, whereas it used to be that you're living a normal life and then when you use the substance, you're living a high normal life, above normal, great. That actually later you don't feel normal anymore. And when you use the substance, it's the closest thing you ever get to feeling normal because some of the terrible negative feelings are reduced. These are just essential ways to understand and to teach people to understand um, addictions. And eventually, as I'm describing, the ingredients of one's life, the outlines of one's life, uh, get twisted around the need for one's substance. Uh, and misery is kind of repetitively and perpetual. So let's say a person with an addiction enters into a DBT treatment. What do you see? Not that you should know this if you're not doing DBT, and most people listening to the podcast probably aren't. I'm hoping this podcast goes out to anybody who can find it useful, these skills. But there are, within the way DBT does it, it, it does capture some ideas about approaching your addiction so first of all, the behavior is described and acknowledged as exactly what it is. You really try to get down into the little grainy details of what the behavior is and what aspect of the behavior is so rewarding and in what way. That same individual probably has other problems because usually an addiction doesn't stand completely on its own um, so that Typical ones when people enter treatment might be that they have suicidal uh, behaviors and, you know, suicide attempts or suicidal threats or suicidal thinking or urges. They might have self-harming behaviors, self-destructive behaviors of other types, self-cutting, self-burning, and, um, and, and self-destructive patterns that interfere with one's treatment, coming and going, not showing up on time, not doing ever any follow-up homework. Um, you know, behaving in a way in the sessions that makes it really hard for the other person to stay motivated. You might have family problems that need addressing or medical problems or the way you manage your medical problems. You might have an anxiety disorder, you know, or post-traumatic stress disorder. You might have depression, and there's other things, right? So there's a whole list of things. So the first thing in DBT is the therapist gets characterizes the specific behaviors and then puts them in order of priority for treatment. And very commonly, the highest priority is going to be on the life-threatening behaviors, the behaviors that could be imminently life-threatening. And you might have more than one of those. And then you'll have behaviors that are going to ruin the treatment. And you might have more than one of those. And then you get down to the uh, addiction behaviors. And that'll typically be at the top of the list of all the rest of the behaviors because of how if it, you are actually at the point of having an addiction and you are causing harm to your life, it will mm, facilitate suicidal thinking and behaviors and ruining treatment types of behaviors and family problems and medical problems and all kinds of things. So in every session in DBT with a therapist, the therapist would hope to address the top problem on the list of priorities and also address the addiction, be characterizing it, uh, monitoring it, keeping track of how it's going in some detail, 
uh, where the patient fills out a card every night uh, about some of the details of it, and you just keep at it. And meanwhile, meanwhile, while that therapist is figuring out getting to know that individual, the person with addiction, getting to know their story, getting to know their history, getting to know what moves them, getting to know what makes a difference to them so that they can help them be motivated. At the same time, the person is learning skills, skills for regulating emotions. And a lot of these problems are there in part. They get perpetuated because the person doesn't know how to regulate emotions and and substances or addictions become the way to do that. Um, All right. Is there anything else I want to cover really before I start talking about the skills, which is now going to be for just a few minutes? Um, all right, we're teaching all these skills, and, and in DBT, we would teach somebody with a substance use problem or addiction problem all the skills for regulating emotions that are in all the modules, the ones I'm covering in this podcast uh, starting a few weeks ago and continuing the next few weeks is the four modules of skills. And we just try to teach them in a way that the person can relate the skill to how it works in their life uh, with related to substance. So you teach all the same skills. It's not that much different except the examples you use and the way you think of it and the way you focus has to do with managing uh, an addiction as well as other life problems. Um, and then, in addition, we teach seven more skills to people with substance use disorders, and that's going to be the focus of the rest of this and then the next podcast, is what are those special skills for when this problem is addiction? All right? So, is it worth, let's see, I got, yeah, five minutes. I'm going to get started with with the first of these, because the first two are kind of big ones, really interesting, really, really interesting. And I think whether you know people with substance use disorder or you work with them or you are a person with an addiction problem. Um, this first one should be interesting, and it might help you. You might already know it. It comes down to this, that in the world of people who have studied the treatment of addictions, there are these two, there's a lot of approaches, but to start with, there's two main categories of approaches with respect to what do you ask of the person that has an addiction when they enter into trying to do something about it. And there's two possibilities. So possibility number one is you ask them to completely stop the addiction, give up the substance, give up the activity, don't do it anymore, Um, find ways to do what's called abstinence. And by abstinence, it means absolutely zero use of the substance, absolutely zero engagement in the activities of addiction, let's say it's gambling. Um, And that can be really difficult, but that's, uh, and there are, you know, AA has typically had that approach, but also it is one of the main approaches with some data supporting it in the substance abuse world. And the other one is a different and uh, one, which is uh, called the harm reduction approach. So it would be rather than focusing on getting the person to upfront swear off the addiction completely and then learn how to do that and how to stick with that. Um, It would be the harm reduction approach would be from the beginning making an assumption that there's probably going to be some slips, some relapses, some fallbacks, 
to really focus on teaching the person how to manage slips in a really skillful way so that they stop them almost as quickly as they start. You watch for them um, and you have all kinds of skills, uh, some of which are in the DBT manual, um, for uh, stopping your skid, you might say, learning how to not quite fall all the way down. Um, and so that becomes a harm reduction approach. And there's a lot of data in support of that. The data in support of the abstinence approach says that if you do a really good job of the abstinence approach, people are more likely to give up the substance for longer periods of time before they relapse. So you get longer times. However, those same people, then when they do relapse, tend to have a bigger relapse, a deeper slip. Okay, and it's, there's a name for that effect that's been found. It's called the abstinence violation effect. It's where you go clean, 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 and then when you slip, it's like, oh my God, it's a big fall. It's a binger. It's a, a bout of the, of the activity of the addiction, right? Now, the harm reduction approach has the advantage in research of, of it appearing that the flips that happen, the relapses that happen, are less extensive. A person is quicker to get back on the wagon, and the person, it causes less damage to the person's life. So it works. But, but the other finding from harm reduction approaches is that they don't, people don't go as long in between relapses. It's almost like you're preparing people for relapses, you're making an assumption there'll be relapses, you're teaching them how to cope with relapses, and maybe as part of that deep thinking, uh, it allows more relapses to happen. So you've got these two different approaches with two different val valuable sets of outcomes and problematic outcomes. And being dialectical, Linehan decided uh, after years of looking at this and studying the um, outcomes of substance abuse trials, treatment trials, uh, to try to get the best of both worlds to try to use both an abstinence approach and a harm reduction approach. And so the thing she came up with, she called, because it tries to take advantage of the wisdom of both sides, the di she called it dialectical abstinence. And those of you who know about substance abuse treatment or something about it, you, it's, it's also captured in the, um, in what are the relapse prevention model of substance use treatment where, in fact, in that model, you do try to go for abstinence and promote abstinence and learn the, learn the things you need to do to try to extend your abstinence and, and look at warning signs for um, relapses and then build in the skills, teach the person the skills for if there's a relapse. So actually, this sort of parallels the, uh, the, the um, relapse prevention approach, which was developed by uh, Alan Marlatt, who was in the same department as Marsha Linehan. Uh, so Marsha knew all about the relapse prevention approach. All right, we're going to stop here. I'm going to, when I start next time, I am going to continue about dialectical abstinence and how you do it. And then we're going to move on to the other six. Okay. I hope this was interesting. I hope that I, I did feel I got myself energized. Uh, so that was good um, from my point of view, because now I have a whole evening ahead of me where I have more energy than I did before. 
So thank you for helping me with that, all of you nameless, faceless people. Okay? I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.